You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Welcome to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Urichu. And this week we're going to begin our discussion of proofs for the existence of God. And we might as well start with one of the most popular ones, which is the teleological argument. Sure, otherwise called the uh, argument from design. And I guess the, um, the easiest way to, to phrase this, which we sort of alluded to last time, is if you just look around, it seems like things in nature work so precisely, work so systematically, that it's hard to imagine that that could have come about by just sheer chance. I mean, the fact that every year at a certain time the leaves start, start to bloom and the birds come back and uh, then at a later time of the year the leaves drop off the trees and the birds know to fly wherever they go. Uh, it d- doesn't seem like it's happening at random. It seems like things are designed to happen that way. Indeed, we've identified laws in the universe. The law of gravity. Um, for every law, there's got to be a lawmaker. So where where the law of gravity come from? Um, the seasons, the sun, the moon. It just seems that the Earth was designed to be maximally productive. Yeah, I mean, even the fact that we're a specific distance away from the sun, if we were slightly closer or slightly further away, life would not be here at all because the conditions wouldn't be right for life. Mm-hmm. Or uh, you know, take even a more uh, detailed example than that. Uh, certain uh, features of the atom, the strong and weak nuclear force inside the atom, if they were slightly different, uh, atoms wouldn't be able to cohere together, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't have planets probably, and certainly not life. So this is what we can see. This is what we know from our experience, and then the, the argument by design for the existence of God uses the device called analogy. We, we, we're very familiar with analogy in philosophy. In fact, even on intelligence tests, that's supposed to be a, an indicator of how intelligent you are. Can you see analogies in common things? And so philosophy uses analogy to prove the existence of God. First, the primary analog is what we, what we observe, as you've just been saying. The weak force, the strong nuclear force, uh, gravity. The, the seasons, the rotation of the Earth, we observe this. It seems to be a perfect design. And so from there we say, if the Earth is designed, just as, say, a watch is designed to tell time, we can conclude there must have been a watchmaker to create the watch. So we make a leap and we say there must have been a designer to design the laws of the universe and the Earth and all its wonder. And that's the uh, famous analogy that uh, William Paley used back in the early 1800s in a book called Natural Theology, where he basically made that seemingly very commonsensical argument. If you found a watch uh, walking in the woods one day, you would naturally conclude that the watch had to have been made. It couldn't have just come about naturally because of what it seems to be doing. It's exhibiting an order, a purpose, a design. And as you say, a design implies a designer. And so if you look around the world at large, or even as Paley did, just pick one example, the human eye, it seems to exhibit at least as much complexity, in fact more, than a watch. 
And so if a watch needs a designer, an intelligent being to create it, certainly something as complex as the human eye would need even a more intelligent designer. And then you expand your, your view even wider to the rest of the, the universe, and that seems to be even more evidence for the existence of some intelligent being. Sure. Um, a guy named Plantinga once summarized the whole argument as saying, the first premise, human artifacts, things made by human beings, are the products of intelligent people. The second premise, the universe resembles these human artifacts. So it's pretty easy to conclude that the universe is probably a product of some kind of intelligent designer. And that's, in essence, that's the argument by design. Yeah, and even people who are not familiar with philosophy at all, and not certainly not uh, William Paley, are able to formulate some version of this on their own. Many people come to this quite naturally, mm -hmm. even without uh, too much philosophical reflection, which I guess le lends credence to the fact that it's a good argument because it seems so commonsensical that you don't need to come up with a lot of strange reasoning to come to this conclusion. The conclusion seems so obvious. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, in the 18th century, it didn't seem obvious to everybody. One of the reasons why Paley wrote Natural Theology was to respond to some rather vehement criticisms of the argument offered by, uh, among others, David Hume, famous 18th century philosopher. Yes, in fact, uh, David Hume used the notion of a disanalogy. The analog All analogies limp, but uh, Hume said this one limped particularly um, because the experience we have of human artifacts is not the same thing as the experience we have of the universe. You just can't say they're alike. Um, we know what makes up human artifacts, we know what makes up a watch, but we haven't a clue how the universe came into being. We have no experience with it. Yeah, and to claim that the, that the watch is in any reasonable sense like the universe it just strains the imagination uh, quite a lot. There's just so many things that make those two entities entirely different. As you say, one of which is we, we know because we can observe the causation of one, but we don't know because we're unable to observe the causation of the other. Mm -hmm. And uh, for Hume, remember, the idea of causation is something that uh, you have to have a strong uh, empirical component to it, otherwise you can't make those judgments. That's right. And Hume had another critique of this argument by design. And that was simply the age-old argument from evil. If, basically, if there is a being we call God who is a designer of the universe, then he's a pretty flawed designer because the universe is flawed. There's evil everywhere. Yeah, usually when you uh, try to reason from the effect of something to its cause, you try to figure out whether knowing something about the effect can tell you something about the cause. For instance, uh, people who are, are experts at this can look at smoke and detect what kind of fire it is by just the smoke. Mm -hmm. uh, so Hume is saying, well, if you do that with the universe, what you would have to conclude, if you were going to be consistent in your reasoning, was since the universe contains a lot of pain and suffering and evil, that must be somewhere in the cause. I mean, it couldn't have just come from an extraneous variable. Precisely. So, so God must well, be at least partially evil. Partially evil, exactly. And you went that, he took that one step further. He said, usually we can tell 
by something designed that the designer has certain characteristics. Uh, a watchmaker would have to have very good vision, for example, and so and very skilled, skillful, and dexterous. And we can conclude that the maker, the creator of a watch, had these characteristics. And there's a thing called anthropomorphism, and that is making attributing human characteristics to things that are not human. So Hume said, well, people who make this argument are very anthropomorphistic. Why don't they go a little further? Is, is God a human being? Well, if, if uh, the universe resembles a watch, the watch resembles a maker, then shouldn't, shouldn't God be human? Um, for example, if we ta you talked about an eye. It's a marvel to behold. Well, who could make an eye unless he had eyes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, one of the other problems with that line of reasoning is if you say, well, the watch obviously is a designed object, so it must have come from a designer. Well, if you stop and think about it, there's really not a lot you can say about the designer. I mean, in particular, how do you know it had to be one designer? Mm -hmm. It could have been a whole group of designers. Uh, it could have been um, uh, I mean we assume that there's one God uh, just like we assume there's one designer of the watch but there's nothing about the observable fact of a watch or a universe that allows us to draw that conclusion right and Hume went on took another tack when uh, he questioned the basic logic of the argument from design. We, um, we have a fallacy in logic called begging the question. That means essentially assuming to be true what has yet to be proved. And Jung kind of suggested that those who use this argument are assuming the existence of God, which has to be proved, and they conclude that God does exist, this designer does exist, but they already believe that a designer does exist, and that leads them to the conclusion. That's kind of circular reasoning, or begging the question. Yeah, and the, not only that, they, they already assume they know quite a lot about the designer, uh, that uh, the designer is benevolent. Yes, the, all kinds of attributes, omniscient, um, omnipotent. So you start with all these divine attributes, and you conclude to a creator, a designer. And Hume said that's flawed logic. Yeah, there's no reason to, to suppose that uh, based on observing the order in the universe that the creator of the universe is omnipotent, very powerful perhaps, but there's a huge difference between a very powerful, very intelligent designer uh, than an omniscient, omnipotent designer. And for all these reasons, a reasonable person could conclude that the argument by design fails miserably. So maybe on that note we can take a break and see if we can reconstruct the argument and articulate it in a way that it's a little more uh, convincing and plausible. Yeah, because we're going to have to re-articulate it because of something that happened in 1859 that, that really represented one of the major challenges to the design argument, which was the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species, mm -hmm. which we'll certainly take up in the next segment. All right. Good break. Okay. I got a lot of data we can use here. 
Okay, so we're back from the break, and we need to talk about, uh, first of all, a very serious challenge to Paley's design argument, and then an attempt to improve the design argument, which has been made uh, very recently. Uh, one of the interesting things about David Hume and his criticisms was that they were actually written before Paley wrote his natural theology. So Paley was, in fact, responding to Hume's criticisms, not the other way around. But interestingly, one of the, the criticisms that, that Hume didn't make as forcefully was the criticism that Paley's argument seems to presuppose that there's only two options. That is, that things were designed or they just happened by chance. Uh, it's very likely that the reason Hume didn't make the criticism in that way was because he couldn't imagine any other alternative mm -hmm. uh, to, the, to the chance argument. Uh, it's actually before you hear the alternative very hard to imagine yourself and it's why Darwin is so respected as a brilliant scientist because he was the one who mm -hmm. came up with this alternative that, that is there might be another explanation for what we see as design in nature besides chance and besides the intelligent design argument and that other explanation might be uh, evolution by natural selection. Yes, it really shifts the whole perspective. These complex evolution, complex organisms, according to Darwin, evolved over time. And the universe doesn't have to be designed to fit life, as the argument from analogy says, the argument by design, but rather life evolved to fit the universe. Right. That's a whole different way of looking at things. Right. So now it doesn't have to have a designer. Life itself designs itself. And uh, on the surface it seems like a counterintuitive idea, but it's actually very elegant and simple to understand the basic principle of evolution. And one of the best examples I've heard of trying to explain the basic principle is given by uh, Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist, in a book he wrote called Climbing Mount Improbable. And he used the example of, suppose you were standing at the foot of a sheer cliff, and you look up hundreds of, hundreds of feet in the air, uh, at the top of the cliff, you see a man standing on the summit, and then before him is this sheer cliff. And of course, if that's all you see, you can't imagine how he would have gotten up there, except perhaps that he leapt up there. And you might even conclude that since people can't leap that high, he must have had some supernatural power to get him up the sheer cliff. And there's no other way to do it. Nothing to hold on to or climb or no ropes or anything. And so it must have been an act of supernatural leaping ability. On the other hand, if you bother to walk around to the other side of the cliff, what you'll see is a very gently rising slope. And it rises over period of, of hundreds of hundreds of yards and it's obvious when you see the slope that all the man had to do was walk around behind the sheer cliff and just walk up the gently rising slope to get to the top and that's what evolution provides us that explanation of taking small baby steps to get to the complexity we see now as opposed to getting to it instantly by some magic supernatural process and those baby steps are misinterpreted by a lot of people. We're talking about long periods of time, eons, millions and millions of years. Life's been around for three and a half billion years on this planet. Yeah, one of the things that um, 
Darwin recognized, thanks to a, a geologist named Charles Lyell, was that if you have a long enough life, uh, a long enough time span, evolution can work, no matter how small the steps are. If you've got millions of millions of years to play with, uh, you can create some pretty phenomenally complex outcomes on the basis of very small uh, steps along the way. Uh, you need a lot of time, though, more more than uh, Bishop Usher, the famous 17th century <laughs> uh, writer, was willing to concede. Uh, he was the one that famously calculated the, uh, the beginning of everything on, I believe it was October the 4th, 4004 BC, right. at, at 9 a.m. or something, even <laughs> yeah. right. got the time of day correct. Uh, of course, that was based on biblical genealogies. Mm -hmm. So, the response to Darwin, which anyone, any thinker has to come up with some kind of a response to Darwin, if a believer has to, uh, is that, yes, we can accept this, this we, we can't doubt evolution anymore. In fact, doesn't, doesn't well, Dennett say that in as much? Yeah, um, a lot of people do, in fact doubt evolution it's it's kind of distressing uh, uh, a philosopher and scientist named Daniel Dennett wrote in a book called Breaking the Spell that according to a recent survey only about a quarter of the population understands that evolution is about as well established as the fact that water is H2O I mean uh, from a scientific standpoint uh, the theory of evolution and sometimes we misinterpret what the word theory actually means is a very well established theory in science, which means it's got lots of evidence to back it up from lots of different converging disciplines, all of which seem to converge on the idea that something like natural selection uh, is occurring. I say is occurring because evolution is not something that occurred in the past and is done now. It continues to occur. I mean, even something as simple as the fact that if you go to a doctor because you have uh, an infection or an illness and they give you antibiotics, the doctor always says, take all the antibiotics. Don't stop just because you feel better. Because if you do, what will happen is you'll only kill off the weak bugs, and the strong bugs will continue to procreate, and the, uh, the bacteria or whatever will become immune to the, the uh, antibiotics. That's evolution in action. Mm -hmm. And the overwhelming majority of species that have ever existed in the three and a half million years, of, three and a half billion years of life on this planet, have gone extinct. In fact, of the ten million species of life that exist on Earth today, ten thousand go extinct every year. So evolution is going on. Yeah, it's a natural, dynamic process. Uh, the the result of which is sometimes uh, new species arising, mm -hmm. but just as often, probably more often, in fact, old species becoming extinct. Mm -hmm. Now. Darwin, for many people, throws a bunky wrench into the design argument. But on the other hand, a believer could still come back with this, that you could accept evolution, but what about the conditions that enabled evolution to take place? Didn't those conditions have to be put down by a designer? And so we have to look again at the argument. Yeah, there's an interesting distinction that, that is made uh, uh, by a philosopher named Tennant, F.R. Tennant, 
who says that Paley's version of teleology is a fairly narrow conception of teleology. That is, uh, Paley says in order to explain each individual uh, species or entity like the human eye, you have to rely on a special act of divine creation. But since Darwin comes along and explains all those things in terms of evolutionary theory, we don't need to postulate a special act of creation for those. But Tennant's point, which you're alluding to, is what we need to postulate is a special act to create the circumstances in which evolution can arise at all. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have a stable atomic structure, the fact that certain universal constants are the value that they are, gravitation we mentioned earlier being one of them, uh, the, the uh, general level of solar radiation we might say is another one, um, the molecular structure of water. Uh, so who set the conditions up such that evolution could occur? And many people say, well, that's where you have to postulate an, an intelligent designer. Yes, precisely. And so let's look at the argument by design as an inference by which we conclude to the most probable, most plausible explanation for the existence of the conditions that enabled evolution to take place. So, um, as an example of inference, let me suggest what one uh, philosopher said. Suppose I got a terrible stomach ache. Then it dawns on me that I just ate a gallon and a half of ice cream, two bags of popcorn, and a whole lot of candy on an empty stomach. The best hypothesis that covers the explanation for that stomach ache arises from what I've just eaten. There could be other hypotheses, too. I could have a stomach ulcer and all that, but the best explanation would be to seem to lie in what I've just eaten. So, let's look at the argument again by design and see if it offers the best explanation for what happened on Earth, for the conditions on Earth. Well, one of the things that uh, scientists do when they ask that question, and that's exactly the, the way that, that many scientists would ask the question, is what counts as the best explanation? Well, part of what counts as the best explanation is the one that offers the fewest amount of postulated entities, that is the simplest explanation, Occam's Razor. Occam's razor. Mm -hmm. um, and let's think about this in terms of evolution versus intelligent design. Evolution says that basically all you need to explain the order and complexity we see around us is a lot of time and slow, gradual, observable processes and we can observe that both of those conditions uh, exist. They exist, but also certain other conditions exist. And if we could say evolution happened as a, as a result of random selections, uh, co continual adaptations over long periods of time. But let's go back to those basic conditions. Um, scientists estimate that if the Earth received uh, much more or any less than two calories per minute per square centimeter of sunlight, then the water in the oceans would either be vapor or they'd be ice. It's that tight. There would be no liquid water, and there, therefore there could be no, no life to ever evolve. Additionally, it's only because the Earth is precisely 93 million miles away from the sun that it produces this kind of life. And, and 
because the amount of calories received from the sun dictates the possibility of life ever arising. Now, if that varied by point, um, point 0.3 calories per square centimeter, there would be no life. Now, we have to ask, how did that ever happen? Well, it seems to me the problem with that line of thinking is in, the, in a universe the size of ours with observably many millions, perhaps billions of galaxies, each of which contain millions of stars, each of which has a high likelihood of having planets around them. Uh, given that number of possible outcomes, um, the example that we're citing of the Earth and it being these sort of just right Goldilocks conditions mm -hmm. only has to occur one time. It might be phenomenally improbable, but we do know at least one thing for certain. It did occur once. No matter how improbable, it, it occurred once because we're here. And it only had to occur once. And in a universe as large as ours, even something as phenomenally improbable as the Goldilocks system that we're in now probably would have had to occur in any case. Well said. And it's also been objected that this is just one of many possible worlds. We know of one Big Bang. Are there others? Could there be other universes? We, we see no end to the universe. That's because our, our instruments don't permit us to see any, any end to it. But could there be other universes? Einstein speculated on bubble universes, multiple universes. Um, so maybe in, a, in an almost infinite number of universes, life arose on one of them. Um, that doesn't prove there's a creator right. or a designer. Because we, like I said, we know that life arose at least once because we're here talking about it. Sure. And uh, evolution only demands that it had to happen. Well, it doesn't demand that it had to happen, but since we, we know it happened one time, evolution doesn't demand that it happened multiple times. So the larger we suppose the universe is, and seems like the more we learn, the more we uh, learn how large the universe really is, the more probable this seemingly improbable uh, event becomes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And others argue that the, um, the design is so tight that a designer had to be in place. For example, you spoke about the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. Um, scientists say if the force of electromagnetism were any stronger or any less, um, there would be no ability of, of atoms to form. Or if they form, they'd fly apart instantly. Uh, so so the, the argument is the universe is finely tuned, and only a designer could finely tune it that much. Uh, it's estimated that, for example, gravity is roughly 10 to the 39th power times weaker than electromagnetism. If it had been only 10 to the 33rd times weaker, stars would be a billion times less massive and would burn a million times faster. And if gravity were 10 times less strong, stars and planets would probably not form at all. So the data suggests that there has to be a fine tuner. And that's a very interesting uh, 
a line of reasoning and seemingly very compelling. Um, many scientists, though, do have a response to this. Uh, among them is Richard Dawkins, who I've mentioned before, who writes in a book uh, he recently published called The God Delusion by saying, uh, first of all, that, uh, that it, it does seem very compelling, these, these uh, universal constants that uh, seem to be very good evidence uh, for the existence of, of a designer. And then he asks the question, how should we respond to this? Yet again, we have the theist answer on the one hand and the anthropic answer on the other. The theist says that God, when setting up the universe, tuned the fundamental constants of the universe so that each one lay in its Goldilocks zone for the production of life. It is as though God had six knobs that he could twiddle, and he carefully tuned each knob to its Goldilocks value. As ever, the theist answer is deeply unsatisfying because it leaves the existence of God unexplained. A God capable of calculating the Goldilocks values for the six numbers would have to be at least as improbable as the finely tuned combination of numbers itself, and that's very improbable indeed which is indeed the premise of the whole discussion we are having. It follows that the theist's answer has utterly failed to make any headway towards solving the problem at hand. I see no alternative but to dismiss it, while at the same time marveling at the number of people who can't see the problem and seem genuinely satisfied by the divine knob-twiddler argument. So the, the argument about there has to be a designer because of this incredible design really hinges on is there a divine knob twiddler out there? And just because we have a design doesn't mean there is, so we have to look at other proofs for the existence of God. Yeah, and we'll take on some of those in our next episode of Radio Free Philosophy.